Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 1st of May. In our on-site service at 10.30 today, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper and all are welcome. Today's podcast focuses on Simon, the fisherman who became a disciple of Jesus. He was given the name Peter, meaning rock, by Jesus. Our first song was Eye of the Tiger, the theme from the film Rocky, the story of an ordinary man who achieved great things. There are quite a few notices today. Our next church members meeting takes place in the sanctuary at 7.45 on Tuesday evening. All church members are encouraged to attend as we make decisions and pray about the important matters in the life of our church. The free church service takes place at the cathedral on Wednesday at 11am. The Reverend Stephen Copson, one of the regional ministers of the Central Baptist Association, will be leading the service. And then finally, we're advertising for staff in our cafe. Please see the advert in today's email or it can be viewed on the church website. If it will be of interest to you or anyone you know, then please do pass it on. And now our call to worship. Some verses from Psalm 30. I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. You refused to let my enemies triumph over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you restored my health. You brought me up from the grave, O Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit of death. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favour lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. When I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. Your favour, O Lord, made me as secure as a mountain. Then you turned away from me and I was shattered. I cried out to you, O Lord. I begged the Lord for mercy, saying, what will you gain if I die? If I sink into the grave, can my dust praise you? Can it tell of your faithfulness? Hear me, Lord, and have mercy on me. Help me, Lord. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You've taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy, that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks for ever.
Come, let us enter the presence of the one who sits on the heavenly throne. Let us join with every creature in heaven and earth and add our voices to the choir of angels, worshipping and praising our Creator, the one most holy. Creator God, you made us in your image, part of your wonderfully diverse creation, fragile and yet fantastic in your eyes. Be present with us today and in all we think and say and do. Meet us and remake us. Shape our hearts and minds that the pattern of our lives may better reflect your life. Lord of life, we come to you now and sit in the warmth of your love just as the disciples sat with you by the fire on the shore. And we say sorry, Lord, for all the times we've knowingly done wrong. We say sorry, Lord, for all the times we've failed to recognise you or your hand on us. And we come now and lay before you all that we are sorry for. all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing Creator, we offer up these prayers seeking forgiveness and restoration. All you who love the Lord, be assured that past wrongs are burnt on the coals of his love, forgiven and forgotten. Glory be to God. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 21, beginning at the first verse. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. There have been a number of books and articles over the last few years that have attempted to rehabilitate the reputation of Judas. The point of many of these is that it was necessary for Judas to betray Jesus in order that God's will should be done. We can follow how such a view might have developed in that in trying to understand what happened when Judas betrayed Jesus, we are holding together two seemingly incompatible doctrines human free will and determinism. It raises the question of how God's will is done. And one way of answering it is to suggest that Judas, when he betrayed Jesus, was doing what God wanted him to do. The question of how we understand this tension between God's providence and the freedom he has given us is one that's still being posed today. If Judas has been misjudged, and I'm not sure that this is truly the case, there are others who have a better case for rehabilitation. I think that we might also want to rehabilitate Thomas. We hear from Thomas three times in the New Testament. On one occasion, he suggests martyrdom, when Jesus said that they should go to Bethany from where news had come that Lazarus had died. On another occasion, Thomas asks Jesus where he is going when he leaves, so that he, Thomas, can follow him there. Two acts that we could describe as loyal, if not exactly brimming with insight. So why does poor old Thomas always carry the nickname Doubting? Well, we know why. It was because of that incident after the resurrection. You'll remember that Mary Magdalene had come to tell the disciples that she'd seen Jesus alive on Easter morning. How did the disciples react to this? Were they out telling all and sundry that Jesus is alive because Mary had told them? Of course not. Our brave boys had stayed locked in a room for fear of sharing the same fate of Jesus. After all, they'd not seen him alive. I like to think that they needed some supplies and that Thomas volunteered to pop round to the shops as no one else was brave enough to show their face. When Thomas got back, they were unloading the shopping and Thomas was just about to sit down when Peter told him, Oh, you missed Jesus when you were out. So what did Thomas say? Well, he wanted proof. And in this, he was no different from the other ten who'd kept themselves barricaded in after Mary had told them what Peter told Thomas. Yes, he doubted. But who did he doubt? Did he doubt Jesus Or did he doubt his colleagues with whom he'd been locked up in a room for three days? 
Yet Thomas was stuck with this nickname, Doubting. Peter might have gone the same way, but he was always the rock. Apart from the confusion that must have occurred when he was mistaken for the American wrestler of the same name, the rock is a pretty good nickname. Yet it could have been so different. It could have been simple Simon, something that I had to deal with when I was a boy. It might have been apt for Peter with all the daft questions that he asked. Or it could have been scared Simon, after the fiasco of his three times denying that he even knew Jesus. But no, it remained Peter, the rock. I don't wish to be too critical of Peter because he's a pretty engaging sort of character. He was always the first one to ask the question everybody else was too afraid to ask, in case it sounded stupid. And generally it did. But it allowed Jesus to explain again what he meant. Peter was always ready to act or talk first and think later. And he was the first to suggest that the fishermen disciples should get back to work when he thought it was all finished. I guess that the reason that I'm prepared to accept all Peter's faults is because he was prepared to leave his work, his livelihood and his home in order to do what he believed he'd been called to do, to follow Jesus. Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth was the version that set the standard for all films of the Jesus story. It's a film I've often used in the context of worship, and I remember one time showing a clip about the call of the disciples. I stopped it at the point that Peter was pushing his boat away, having decided to stay with Jesus. As the boat slid out of Peter's reach, the camera zoomed on his face, and as the film paused, we could see, in the expression that was frozen on Peter's face, his realisation of the enormity of what he'd done. This was to be the start of a journey in which Peter would follow this man Jesus, whom he loved, and who would teach him about God and about his own part in God's plan. Because Peter was the rock on which Jesus would build his church. And it's he, Jesus said, who would hold the keys to God's kingdom. Certainly Peter had times when he behaved in a most unrock-like fashion. His three times denying that he knew Jesus his sinking into the sea when trying to walk on water, and, more honourably, his swinging his sword in defence of Jesus in Gethsemane, all come to mind. He was impulsive, but perhaps even rocks are allowed to be impulsive. We must remember that Peter made his most obvious blunders when he'd shown himself to be the leader of the disciples. Perhaps in this role he was a rock for Jesus. Surely it would be to deny the true humanity of Jesus if we were to imagine that there were never times when Jesus needed human support and comfort. But this was not Jesus' meaning when he told Simon that he, Simon, would be the rock on which the church would be built. There is no suggestion that Peter was to be the first in a succession of rocks, but that this one man would be the crucial figure in the foundation of the community of believers that came to be the church against which no power has yet prevailed. Yet not long after Simon was named as the rock on which the church will be built, he was shown to be an altogether different kind of rock, a stumbling block for Jesus, when Peter tried to persuade Jesus to turn away from the journey that would lead to the cross. And this sort of misunderstanding is classic Peter. Do you remember the time that Jesus wanted to wash the feet of the disciples? Peter at first refused to allow Jesus to demean himself in this way, 
but when told it was important, he wanted Jesus to give him a bath. The Gospel according to John has a rather strange ending. Chapter 20 finishes with the story I mentioned earlier in which Jesus seems to look beyond the here and now of his conversation with Thomas, Peter and the others to a time when people would no longer have the opportunity to see his face or touch the wounds in his hands and sides as he promises a blessing on those who believe in him without having had what might be considered these advantages. At the end of that chapter, John writes this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This looks like the place that John's book might end, but then we find that there's another chapter, the majority of which I've read today. Yet chapter 21 doesn't have the feel of having been tacked on as an afterthought. It seems as though we are revisiting these people at some unspecified time in the future. They've done what the angel at the tomb said in Matthew's and Mark's story. They've gone back to Galilee and picked up their lives where they'd left them. All the other resurrection appearances of Jesus that we read about in the gospel stories occur in Jerusalem or the surrounding countryside. But the angel at the tomb had promised that Jesus would go ahead of them to Galilee. I wonder, had these fishermen really kept that hope that they would see Jesus again where they first met him? They had a barren night's fishing, and just as it was getting light, they heard a stranger call to them from the shore. I'm sure it would have been a fairly short conversation. If you've caught nothing out at sea all night, the last thing you want is some clever dick with their feet on dry land telling you how you could do it better. We're not told whether there was any discussion amongst those who were fishing, but perhaps they felt they'd nothing to lose and they threw the net out on the other side of the boat. There they caught so many fish the net had to be dragged behind the boat as it was too heavy to haul in. Perhaps eyes that had been mysteriously clouded could now see, as happened to those of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, as one of the disciples spotted that the man who had called to them was Jesus. Peter had one of his moments again, and he climbed over the side and waded to the shore. Jesus called for them to put some fish on the barbecue he'd prepared with some bread for breakfast. They knew it was Jesus, but they didn't dare ask him, although... What they wanted to say was, is it really you? The scene changes at verse 15 as Jesus and Peter seem to be alone for this conversation that Peter must have been dreading. Three times Jesus asked Peter a variation of the same question. Do you love me? On the first two occasions that Jesus asks the question, he uses one word for love, while Peter in his response uses a different word for love. On the third occasion, Jesus reverts to using the word that Peter has used all along. It's sometimes been suggested that Peter's word for love is less powerful than the word that Jesus uses, and that Peter's hurt at this third time of asking is in response to the perception that Jesus has recognised the limits that Peter has placed upon his devotion to Jesus. It sounds a good argument, but it doesn't really hold water, 
not least because the language in which John wrote his story is not the language that Jesus spoke, but also because we might be looking for differences that are not really there. The New Testament shows us that both these words for love, agapetos and philios, were used interchangeably to speak of the love of human beings for God and for each other, and of God for human beings. The word philios is also used to describe the love that Jesus felt for his friend Lazarus. So we need to look elsewhere to understand why Jesus asked the question three times and why this so upset Peter. Well, the answer is straightforward enough, and it takes us back to what happened while Jesus was being interrogated over the night before his execution. Three times Peter betrayed Jesus, and now Peter knew, if he ever doubted it, that Jesus knew. Yet, while this knowledge brought Peter pain, this three times asked and thrice answered question also brought restoration. It's not easy to show Peter's three times denial of Jesus in a good light, so perhaps we shouldn't try, but simply say that he was frightened for his own life as he realised the possible consequences of loyalty to Jesus. The passage I read today tells us something about these consequences. The restoration of Peter in John 21 is not unlike his commissioning by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 except that in John the emphasis is more on pastoral care than on authority. Perhaps there is in the background here something of Ezekiel's prophecy regarding the shepherd who cares for his flock. Ezekiel spoke of one who would come after David, who would be the pastor of God's people, and clearly Jesus fulfilled that role. But here in John chapter 21, Jesus passes on the mantle to Peter. In the beginning, Peter had been called by Jesus to leave his nets and his old life behind. In our passage this morning, we find that Jesus has forgiven and restored Peter to the place to which he had been called. But just as Peter was called into the unknown when Jesus first said that he should follow him, so here again Jesus leads his disciple not only to new places, but also to think thoughts that were new. What became of Peter later? Well, we know that he'd led the disciples between the ascension of Jesus and Pentecost, where he preached to the gathered crowds. He was the senior figure in the early days of the Jerusalem church, and he was a preacher and a miracle worker. The book of the Acts of the Apostles also credits Peter with a key role in opening up the gospel to Gentiles. Peter told Cornelius, a Roman centurion, that women and men are only accepted by God through the cross of Jesus. And this means that matters such as whether or not you choose to eat shellfish or can trace your ancestry back to Abraham are of secondary importance. People, whether Jews or Gentiles, are acceptable to God only because Jesus made them so, and not by birth or through what you eat. This all sounds pretty straightforward now, but for Peter, born and brought up a Jew, this was a big deal. There would be some tough times ahead for Peter, and he would not always be able to see clearly the way that God was leading him. But I guess that's true for us too. The message for us from this story of Peter is one of redemption. If we are willing to be used by God as individuals and as a congregation, 
there is always a way back to our place with him and a way forward into future service. This way may not always be crystal clear and God may lead us, as he led Peter, into new ways of thinking and doing and even into new ways of being the people he'd called us to be, people who are followers of Jesus. I think that the reason Peter is one of my favourite biblical characters is because in his bad points he's like me and in his good points he is the person that I would like to be. He was sometimes indecisive and at other times impulsive. He made the most appalling gaffes and he embarrassed himself and worse. But he was also a man who was ready to learn from Jesus and he desired above all else to follow his Lord and was often brave and ready to take the lead. In one sense, he is every man, but he is also the rock on which Jesus built his church. And that gives me great hope for what God can do now with us, flawed and fallible people, but always the people whom God has made, and always the people whom God loves. Amen. Each wound you've received, just 
just a burdensome gift It gets so hard to lift Yourself up off the ground But the poet says we must praise The mutilate our world We're all working a graveyard shift You might as well sing along People are broken Believe me My heart should know As for your tender heart This world's gonna rip it wide open It ain't gonna be pretty But you're not alone Believe me, my heart should know Orphan believers, skeptical dreamers You're welcome, yeah, you're safe right here You don't have to go
Let us pray. Sometimes, Lord, something comes along that happens to shake our world. Thank you that you are with us through the difficulties. The walls of our lives may be stripped bare, yet you paper them afresh and give us a new pattern of living. At times we can be a little slow to catch on to what you are wanting to do in our lives. But we thank you that just as you never gave up on Saul or Peter, you never give up on us. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. Thank you for your caring restoration and renewal. Thank you for blessing us with new beginnings. In this week of local elections, we pray for those standing as candidates and for those who will vote. May truth be tended and integrity fed and the way of Christ be followed. We pray for the people of France for their re-elected president and the forthcoming National Assembly elections and indeed for all those across the world who are elected to power. May truth be tended and integrity fed and the way of Christ be followed. We pray for those entrusted with the administration of justice and implementation of policies that affect the lives of millions. We pray for those whose abuse of power leads to the oppression and even deaths of those who speak out. May truth be tended and integrity fed and the way of Christ be followed. We continue to pray for the people of Ukraine, for those hiding in basements, for those living in trenches, for those traumatised by all they have seen, heard and endured. May they encounter your risen presence in the ruins of their lives and in the rubble of their cities. We pray for people who feel forgotten as the attention of the world's media moves elsewhere. In Afghanistan, in Syria, in the Yemen and all places of war and hunger. May they encounter your risen presence in the ruins of their lives and in the rubble of their cities. And we pray for fishermen today, those whose nets are emptied by regulations or climate change and all who face danger at sea. We pray for our stewardship of the rivers and oceans of the world, that they may be protected from plastic, from all pollution and for all creatures in the oceans and seas. Lord Jesus, may we catch on to your teaching, follow your way and love one another and all creation. We pray for farmers and those who work the land, for all whose livelihoods are threatened, for compassion in farming practices and for thoughtful planting. Lord Jesus, may we catch on to your teaching, follow your way and love one another and all creation. And we pray for one another, for those we worship alongside, for those on our hearts and for those we know are suffering. Lord Jesus, may we catch on to your teaching, follow your way, and love one another and all creation. Amen. Yeah, 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 yeah.
last song is I Am A Rock, sung by Simon and Garfunkel. Now you can see why I've chosen this song, because it could refer to Simon, who was given the name Peter, that is, Rock, by Jesus. Simon's nickname could almost be ironic in that when he was under most pressure, he crumbled. Simon's problem was living up to his name. The person singing this song has a different problem, which is that he is an island rock, cut off, isolated from human contact, in order not to get hurt again. Jesus did not cut himself off. He made himself vulnerable. Much as we might like to be independent and self-reliant, we are people who are made to live in community, reliant on one another, 
reliant on God. We are called to be steadfast, but also ready to accept help. Before that song, a final prayer. Send us out, Lord, not perfect creations, but always work in progress. Keep before us the vision of heaven on earth. Show us the way of life that is the pattern of Christ. Fill our hearts with the hope and promise of your ongoing work of transformation in our lives, now and every day. Amen. A winter's day In a deep and dark December my window to the streets below on a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow I am a rock I am an island I've built walls a fortress deep and mighty No need of friendship, friendship causes pain It's laughter and it's loving I disdain I am a rock, I am an island Don't talk of love Slumber of feelings that have died If I never loved, I never would have cried I am a rock, I am an island I have my books And my poetry to protect me In my womb, I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock, I am an island. And a rock feels no pain, and an island.